Hi, and welcome to The Conversation, a brand new podcast airing viewpoints on the impact of artificial intelligence on business and society. Today, artificial intelligence, commonly known as AI, is a technology that transcends industries. It can do things like pull spam out of your inbox. It can analyze complex medical data. And if you ask, it'll tell you the weather or even play your favorite song. Through dialogue and debate with AI executives and academics, our show is going to peel back the layers on the ways in which AI is changing our lives to understand how its impact can be as beneficial as possible. The conversation is presented by Interactions, a conversational AI company that builds intelligent virtual assistants capable of human-level communication and understanding. I'm your host, Jim Fries, Chief Marketing Officer at Interactions, and I'm a longtime tech enthusiast. Today, I'm thrilled to kick off the first episode of our podcast with an internationally recognized expert in AI, Rob Atkinson. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thank you for having me. We felt it was fitting to speak to Rob in our show's first episode because he can offer a broad introduction to the tech and innovation landscape today and specifically where AI fits in. He's the president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. It's a D.C.-based tech policy think tank. Rob's also an internationally recognized scholar and expert on innovation, so much so that in 2011, the Obama administration appointed him to an advisory board focused on national innovation strategy. Rob, to start us off, I thought I'd just ask a little bit about your background. I know you have a master's degree from the University of Oregon in urban planning. And so I'm interested in what inspired the pivot from urban planning to studying and researching innovation. Sure. Well, when I got my master's degree there, it was in a time when the economy was in utter freefall. It was a lumber and wood product state, and there were literally towns that were burning down because there was no economic viability. So I decided to switch from urban planning, planning cities, to figuring out where does wealth and prosperity and sustainability come from. So that's when I got my PhD in Chapel Hill and really focused on innovation, studying the economics of innovation, how organizations deal with innovation, and how governments promote innovation. And that's what I've been doing my entire career. So when you first made that pivot, did you anticipate the widespread impact of tech innovation on society and the economy in general? Yeah. I mean, one of the things that was pretty clear early on is that, at least in the fields that I was studying, that we go through these innovation waves every really generation or half century or so. Uh, This is pioneered by the famous economist Joseph Schumpeter. He argued that we go through these big transformative waves of innovation. And so in the early phases of those, the the technology comes about. People are trying to make it a little better, trying to figure out how to use it. And companies are vying for position And then eventually we get to the point where it becomes standard fare. Most companies are using it. You have a few major companies who thrive. Like, for example, in the 90s, we didn't really know who was going to be the dominant player in uh, office uh, software, for example. You know, was it going to be WordPerfect or Microsoft or some other companies? And one player emerged. So I think we're in a similar position today, only we're in that early beginning phases of it. And eventually, maybe 10 years from now, we'll be in a world where we're not really talking about the AI revolution because it'll just be all around us. We'll be talking about how to make it a little better, how to how to use it better, how to extend its uh, its uses. Yeah. So based on that commentary and characterization, it feels like you believe we're at the beginning of one of those waves. And that wave specifically is the application or applied AI. 
Yeah, I mean, we actually wrote a report. I wrote a report last in December called Transforming the World with Connectivity, Automation, Intelligence. Really three things together. It's the ability to have a lot of things that generate data. Obviously, AI is pretty worthless without data. And that data could be in the form of voice, as your company does, or in the form of sensors on cars and parking meters and all sorts of things. Secondly, it's about using that to do things. So, um uh, autonomous systems alike. And the third is really using it to make it make sense of it, if you will. And that's really the power of AI and the various flavors and versions of AI. It's taking data and, and allowing us to, to uh, take action based upon its meaning. So today there's a common notion that AI is going to put us all out of a job. But I read an article in the Wall Street Journal where you remarked that worries around AI and job loss are, are overblown. You said, it's time to take a deep breath and stop panicking about artificial intelligence and what it pretends for jobs. No, AI won't destroy more jobs than it creates. No, the pace of technological change is not accelerating. And no, we certainly don't need to tax AI to slow it down. At Interactions, we certainly subscribe to your point of view, but there's no doubt that there is this apprehension out there. So where do you think that apprehension came from? What's causing it? Well, I think there are two things. One is, if you go back in history, every single time we've been at the similar stage in this innovation cycle, there's been a panic. There's been a fear. I'll read you a quote here. Uh, a new era of production has begun in which there may soon be no more need for the vast pool of workers. That was written by a um, labor uh, secretary, U.S. labor secretary in 1927. <laughs> 27. <laughs> 1927. It's very similar to what you hear today. Another quote from a Fortune 100 CEO, it's entirely possible we'll have a permanent segment of our society unemployed from a technology. 1963. So that's really the first step. Every time these new technologies come about, they transform work and they replace a lot of work in certain areas. So we went from 60% agricultural workers down to 20% over 35 years or so, that was a big transformation. People panicked and said, oh, we're not going to have any jobs. We always had jobs. The reason we always had jobs is that people spent their money. Well, when food costs less or when cars cost less, uh, people don't throw that in the ground. They actually go out and they, because the car is cheaper and food is cheaper, they go spend it on other things. Who would have thought we would have had a luxury coffee industry in the U.S. called Starbucks? You know, that, that's just because people have more money and they think that coffee, nice coffee is worth spending money on. And so, you know, we're going to see the same thing going forward. However, I do worry that today, one, one of the things that always tempered that in the past, particularly in the United States, was we always had this desire to get ahead in the U.S., to become a great country and then to maintain that greatness. And we were always of the view that America was about progress. And if you didn't think that, you were some weirdo with a tinfoil hat. Today, we are more accepting of that view. I read an article in the Washington Post about Amazons uh, using robots in their warehouse, and the entire article was essentially saying, Amazon might lay off a worker. This is awful. And if we're in a world where you're never allowed to lay off any worker, no matter how well you treat them, you know, we're in a world where we're basically saying we can't have a lot of technological change. Listening to you describe this, it sounds like the history of technology for the last 500 years. I mean, disruptive technology disrupts. And yes, it does impact some jobs, but it always creates so much more because of the productivity you gain from it. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about the kinds of things that a lot of people do today, I mean, the major job in the U.S. economy today is an office job. Most Americans work in an office. And that was not true 50 years ago. And so why do most Americans work in offices? Because we've made manufacturing and agriculture and mining and these other kinds of extractive industries, we've made them so productive that we can have all the output we have in that, which is much bigger than it was 50 years ago. And we still have other things we want to spend our money on. People want to spend money on insurance policies. They want to spend money on higher education. Uh, a whole wide array of things that 50 years ago people didn't spend money on because they don't have money. We're never going to run out of things to spend money on. That's just never going to happen. And as long as that's the case, there will always be new jobs created because people will want new things and better things. So you've given one example. I was going to, I was going to ask you, uh, given the fact that AI is disruptive technology, where are the opportunities in that and where are the risks? Sure. I think one of the points that's important there is AI is going to have a bigger impact on job replacement, on jobs that tend to be lower skilled uh, and lower wages. So AI is really good, but it's not magic. AI cannot do my job. You know, I run an organization. Can't do that. I hope it can't do my job either. <laughs> it can't do your job either. Exactly. Although it probably at some point maybe could be an interviewer. <laughs> but the point is AI can do important things, but they tend to be somewhat more routinized. They take all sorts of data and make and find patterns. Where I think what we'll see is where when AI is applied to higher skilled jobs and more complex jobs, it's going to be what economists call a complement. So a doctor will use AI to improve his or her ability to diagnose and treat patients. A patent attorney will use AI to find patterns in patents and be able to make a better case in their, in, in their prosecution. Uh, where I think it will tend to be more replacement is on lower skilled jobs that are more routinized. And at one level, you can say that's a problem, that's bad. But on the other hand, one of the biggest challenges in our economy today is there are a lot of low-wage jobs. Part of it is because, you know, companies, sure, they could pay a little bit more, but they can't pay a lot more because the jobs, essentially, there's not enough technology in them to make them high-value-added jobs. So, you know, automating some jobs, I think, would be, frankly, good for most workers, with the caveat being can we do a better job of helping workers move into more middle-class jobs where they can make a better living, but maybe have more skill requirements? That's the key question, I think, not are we going to run out of jobs. So how do you believe government leaders should, if they should at all, address apprehension around AI in the workplace? So if the, if the government doesn't act smartly and effectively over the next two or three or four years, I really worry that we're going to have an AI backlash in the country. We're going to have so much opposition just because people are going to feel like, you know, I might lose my job and, and I've got a kid in school and I got a mortgage and I, you know, I can't afford that. So I'm going to I'm going to support a politician who says things like, let's tax AI. And there are there are people now who are saying that let's regulate AI. So it's only used at really bad, and dangerous jobs, but not at sort of normal jobs. That would be a huge mistake for the country, I believe. So how do we avoid that? Governments need to do a much better job of helping workers make these adjustments. Part of it is to have policies that encourage companies to do more uh, training. U.S. corporations have spent less on training now than they did 30 years ago. So there's lots of different policy ideas. One idea we've been pushing is the idea, what we call a knowledge tax credit, where right now a company who does R&D can get a tax credit 
why not give them a tax credit for their expenditures on training their frontline workers? That would give them more incentive to really focus on that. And if those workers have more skills, you know, even if they're laid off, they would be in a much better position to move to a new and better lily pad. So policy specifically around encouraging companies to do the right behavior relative to the potential disruption that could result from a technology like AI. Absolutely. Our education and training system in the country is nowhere near as good as it should be. You know, we have this view that if you get a college degree, that you've learned what you need to learn. And yet studies show that only about 38% of college seniors in their last semester of college are fully numerate. Uh, sorry, 32% are numerate and 38% are literate. That's a pretty shocking statistic. Uh, it's really shocking. Uh, you know, our colleges need to do a much better job of imparting skills. And not, you know, the other thing is more and more workers are going to need what my colleague David Moschella calls double deep skills. So it's not enough to come out of college with an accounting degree. If you also don't know statistics and algorithms and AI, you're not going to be as good an accountant. The same thing with somebody who's an artist or a graphic designer. You know, even an anthropologist now or an art historian needs to know certainly some things about AI. So that's one thing we could do, but we don't do a very good job of in the country right now. This whole topic around, you know, how we deal with the, the disruption that results in, in government intervention. I was listening to CNBC. There was a big debate about big tech, the Facebooks of the world and the Googles, and to what extent should they be regulated and should we break them up? I was thinking about that as you were talking about some of the policy around AI. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of wondering if if there are ways or things that we can just do in as, as parents or as, as uh, leaders in our communities to get people more comfortable with AI so they don't view it as much of a threat as, as it is perceived, certainly by some people and, and certainly um, some leaders in government. Right now, AI, it's like magic. It's this weird elixir. You don't know what it is, and yet it's not all that complicated. But most people, they have so little knowledge of it that it becomes a source of fear Rather than, oh, yeah, I understand what AI is. Just a technology like any other technology. It has these advantages. It can do really important things here, but it, it really isn't applicable here. And it's hard for people to even know that when they have so little background or basis in statistics and even computer science. If you look at high school curriculum in this country, about 88% of American high school kids will take and pass geometry. But about 8% of them will take and pass statistics. That is 100% backwards. If I have to prioritize one of those things, I'm going to prioritize statistics for the economy we're in today. It sounds like it, you think this is a particularly important time for us to be talking about and educating people about AI, and it's not too early to think about doing that, even in school for kids. Absolutely. A, a good but troubling statistic is there are more high school kids in California that take pottery than take computer science. Wow. Now, that's pretty shocking because... Number one, we're talking about California, which is a tech hub of the world. Secondly, I'm not knocking the art, but I think computer science is so important that you know, everybody should have at least one year of computer science just so they know what it is. And then they're going to be a little bit more capable of having a reasonable understanding of how these technologies are reshaping our society. But ideally, also, even with one year of computer science, you're going to have more capabilities to deal more effectively with different kinds of jobs that you might have in your career. But we don't do that. And again, that's where I really come back to this political will issue. It's, it's really about political will. Do we want to make our society resilient for this next wave or do we just kind of leave it up to the happenstance and, you know, if you make it, you make it. If you don't, you don't. I hope we do the former.
Are you uh, aware of any schools that you think today, you know, I'm talking about high schools or even middle schools, that are doing a really particularly good job in educating kids with a curriculum that's more germane to the world we live in? One of the great things about the U.S. system compared to, say, Europe, where it's much more regimented, is we do have more experimentation in the U.S. So we have over, at this point, probably 110, 120 specialty math and science high schools in the country. So if you're in New York, you've got Bronx Academy. If you're in Arkansas, you've got the Arkansas Science and Technology High School. Places like that are doing just a fantastic job of teaching kids computer science and STEM skills. You've got a whole set of schools now that are designed around project-based learning, which I think is just fantastic. I mean, if you look at the studies of high school kids, and 70% of high school kids are bored every day in high school. That's pretty tragic. And I get that it's work and all that, and high school kids have their other interests sometimes, but we should really give kids a lot more opportunities rather than just hey, it's nine o'clock, you have to go to your history class. Uh, we, we, again, we're teaching, we're teaching kids in high school pretty much the way we taught them 100 years ago. Well, it's good to hear that there are schools out there that are doing it right. And I think it's fantastic that there are people like you who are out there advocating changes and having a dialogue around AI and the impact. I think that AI is is one of those technological changes that is going to have a pretty material impact. The dialogue you brought today was just fantastic, and I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It's really an honor to be on the first podcast, and I look forward to listening to the other ones. Terrific. Thank you once again, Rob. Okay. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. On the next episode of The Conversation, we'll talk social robots, AI-powered robots that look and communicate like humans. We'll speak to Professor Gabriel Skansa. He's a co-founder and chief scientist at Furhat Robotics, a social robot company. This episode of The Conversation was recorded at the PRX Podcast Garage in Alston, Massachusetts, and produced by Interactions, a Massachusetts-based conversational AI company. Well, that's a wrap for The Conversation, episode one. I'm Jim Freeze signing off, and we'll see you next time.